morning. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for October 8, 2014. And um, I'm glad to be back after a week away. I was in Nashville learning a lot about patient safety. Actually, you'd be proud to know that Chad, your children's hospital, is one of the first 82 members of the Children's Hospital for Solutions, Solutions for Patient Safety uh, Hospital Engagement Network and became one of the first 48 children's hospitals in the country to be part of the Children's Hospitals Association Patient Safety Organization. So Johanna Bellavo, Sam Casella, George Blake, Michelle Vander Hayden, and myself learned a lot about things that will be coming to uh, your clinics and your um, places of practice in the coming years. We roll out error prevention training and, and other important methodologies that are important for all of us. Um, so with that, I um, uh, We'll uh, transition to this week's Grand Rounds, and I have the opportunity and honor to have Sean Ralston, our uh, Associate Professor and Director of Hospital Medicine, uh, welcome our guest speaker. Thanks, Keith. Um, so uh, I, I'm going to uh, in introduce um, Dr. Evans, our speaker today, because uh, I invited her, and I'm excited about this topic. Dr. Evans um, is an assistant professor um, of pediatrics at um, Eastern Virginia Medical School and um, on the faculty at Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters, where I believe she did a pediatric hospital medicine fellowship. Um, and um, Dr. Evans's work has been related to um, the management of the febrile infant and integration of, uh, of the bulk of the evidence as well as um, t the impact of time to positivity on the likelihood of pathogens in cultures. And I think what's interesting for the young people in the audience, the residents and people you know, thinking about their careers, what Dr. Evans has been able to do is pursue research questions that mattered to her and were clinically meaningful um, and do it you know, um, in a, um, uh, you know, basically on her own. And so I'm really impressed with the work she's done, and I'm excited that she's going to bring some challenging questions to us today. All right, so hopefully I have my um, microphone on here. So well, uh, thank you here. I've had a great time so far at Dartmouth. Um, I think I came at the exact right time of year to see all the beautiful leaves. So I'm glad I'm not here in December because I'm not a cold weather person at all. Um, but it's beautiful right now. So thank you all for letting me come up here and talk. So um, if for those of you who don't know King's Daughters, we're down on the coast of Virginia. Um, we have a large military area. Um, a lot of folks who are vacationing, so that's kind of our, our catchment. Um, we're the only freestanding children's hospital between DC and Charlotte um, down in North Carolina. So um, we are the, the biggest area in Virginia, VCU and UVA are other um, children's hospital within a larger hospital um, in Virginia. So I took this topic on basically, like Sean said, because I was seeing all these febrile babies, just like we all are, and wondering why we were doing things the way that we were and how to improve the care for those infants, um, given all the changes that have happened in the last 20 years. So um, this is a, a topic ongoing um, as to how we're changing the standard of care. Um, and I took the quotations off of standard of care because um, to me that changes depending on your locality, your institution, um, but standard of care is defined differently um, depending on who you talk to and which institution you're in. So I have no financial relationships. Like uh, we said, I, I don't make any money off of this research, but I like it, I enjoy it. Um, no conflicts of interest, no financial relationships. Um, the conflict that I usually try and disclose here is that 
Um, the information I present is improving care of infants, um, the quality of care, hopefully the accuracy of care that we're providing. Um, that has downstream effects like anything that we improve, length of stay, et cetera. Um, those downstream effects are on your division, the finances of the hospital, et cetera. I'm not gonna be talking about those charges, costs, et cetera, um, with these impacts, but they definitely are there as well. So history is important. So if any of you guys have things that you're interested in, any topics, it's really fun to look back at the history of those topics. So I wanted to review a little bit because the, the topic of fever is fascinating. It's been one of the things that people have focused on the most in medicine probably, especially in young children. Um, why we have fever, what does fever mean, what are we gonna do about it? Some people try and induce fever at different, at different times. So um, it's fascinating to look back through history about fever. Um, but starting around 1900, essentially, if your kid got a fever, if you're a physician, you could maybe diagnose meningitis, you could diagnose pneumonia, you could diagnose potentially other things, but you couldn't do anything about it. Um, aside from the sort of archaic trials that people did to try and fix it, there wasn't a whole lot that was definitive. Um, so basically you survived or you didn't, and congratulations. You know, doctor comes up and says, your kid made it, that's great, I don't know why, but good for you guys. Um, so that's all we had, and it was a really hard time to be a, a parent and a physician. Um, the 1940s were our time, you know, this is where antibiotics became widely available. Um, we had them scattered before that, but really the 40s was when we were able to use um, antibiotics uh, widespread, and that changed the face of medicine. Um, in, incredibly, pediatrics especially is my interest, obviously. Um, soon after that, we got vaccines. So this time was amazing. So to be a physician then, to me, would have been great to see these changes, to be able to fix things, prevent things is wonderful. Um, and this was a huge deal um, to get us uh, improvements in morbidity and mortality in childhood. So up until that point, we'd essentially been running constantly to keep up with kids who were sick. Um, and we got vaccines, we got antibiotics, we were able to slow down a little bit and actually focus on what we were doing and find some evidence based behind that. So we had a surge of research in the 70s where you can see that probably pediatricians, I haven't looked at adult medicine, they sat down and we, they thought, we can figure this stuff out. We know what we're doing, we can figure this out. Um, and so for a fever, for babies, you can see the larger institutions really started to figure out who they wanted to test and why they were testing and what they were looking for. Um, but at that point, the lab results weren't as good as we have now. Um, and a lot of the research was being done in ICU, so it wasn't really applicable to everyday practice. Um, so that was too big of a job, so we kind of backed up and tried to target the biggest morbidity that we were seeing at the time for infant fever, which was Hib. And so in the 80s was really the HIB focus and also starting to develop our fever uh, protocols. Um, so we kind of got a handle on HIB. We started vaccination around 1991, um, which has had a big impact. I've only seen one case in my six-year career, or nine years now otherwise. I doubt the residents and students have ever seen it. Has anybody seen resident students Hemophilus? Probably not. Um, so we haven't, we don't see this anymore, but if you talk to a physician in the 80s, that's essentially all you saw. Um, and so you made the assumption that a febrile baby had HIV until proven otherwise. So we made a big change here. So once we took care of that, um, we focused on pneumococcus. So this was the bulk of the 90s. Um, pneumococcal vaccines started around 2001, also made a big impact, largely in a little bit older babies that I'm talking about today, but still a big deal um, for the febrile infant. So now we come to today, where I think a lot of researchers are similar to the 70s, where we're saying, well, now we can surely figure this out. We've got great labs, we've got great meds, we have improved uh, culture technique. And so I'm in this camp now where we can really figure it out now. And I imagine 50 years from now, people are gonna be saying the exact same thing about us all over again. Um, 
So I like to start everybody on the same page um, so that you know my topic of interest is basically healthy term febrile babies. So what I'm talking about today doesn't apply to the NICU or the PICU or the kid in your resuscitation room in the ED. Um, this is the kid who looks fine but has a fever. Um, so this is our true occult infection population. So not the 26-weeker with a VP shunt and posterior urethral valves. Um, it's just the healthy baby. Okay, so those other kids have a whole different risk factors that I'm not going to talk about today. Um, and then these are only kids with fever. So this is the febrile infant. All of our protocols are in febrile infants. They don't apply and don't necessarily work for infants with low temperature. Um, I don't like to use the word hypothermia because I don't think it's been defined, but low temperatures, apnea, seizure, alti, et cetera, other reasons you might do a workup for, uh, for infection. Um, so this is just febrile infants. And then um, right now we're <laughs> defining serious bacterial infection, SBI, um, as classically, UTI, bacteremia, meningitis. Um, this is evolving, and I think that we're probably going to reclassify things in the next few years. Um, some folks include osteomyelitis, pneumonia, skin soft tissue infections, et cetera, here. Um, but for the purposes of most research, it's those top three um, invasive infections. So this came out through clinical questions. You know, this is why I do research, is to answer what I do in daily practice and why, and try and provide an evidence base to that. So two of the three questions here we've kind of already answered. Um, they may change in a few years, but right now folks are not really messing with it too much. So who needs testing? Um, for those who need testing, who do we admit? And where I'm focusing on is for those who need admission or who are admitted, um, how much do we need to do empirically? Um, so my bulk is on that third question. I'm going to review the top two uh, questions as well. So who needs testing? So again, this is it's variable depending on who you talk with. Um, but basically, it's that population of kids who have a fever and you don't know why. Um, so if they have an obvious pneumonia, if they have bronchiolitis, if they have um, hardware in place, those are not kids that you're trying to figure out why they have an infection. You know that there's something there. Um, so this is kids who um, have no apparent reason that you're trying to figure out why that fever is there. Um, looking at kids, it's hard to tell sometimes. Um, so to go through these observation scores, um, I actually think this sort of gets extrapolated a little too far to say that physicians can't tell when kids are sick. Um, but the observation scores are essentially looking at the kid from the door, looking at their cry, their reaction, their color, et cetera, and trying to put a number on that. Um, and it's pretty obvious to me why those wouldn't work. You can't look at a kid, a baby, and it's not hard to be a baby. So they just kind of lay there. So you can't really observe them necessarily and say with certainty um, who has a bad bacterial infection and who doesn't. Um, why I think that these kind of get a bad rap is because you may not be able to tell from the door, but you lay your hands on that child, you do some lab work, you get some history, you figure out what the parents think is going on, most of the time you can tell. Um, and I can give you some examples. There's a big outpatient setting, um, the pediatric research and uh, outpatient setting, um, office setting is a big uh, outpatient group, and they basically studied what pediatricians do, looking at kids, doing some labs, put their hands on the baby, and figure out what their risks are. And it's pretty darn good um, at figuring things out. So. Just looking from the door may not work, um, but you can do some other things as well. Um, and why we do this is the SBI risk in young infants is higher than older kids. So it's definitely there, and we need to figure out who has what, which problem and, um, and what that problem is. So these numbers here are not definite numbers um, because there's so much literature on um, serious bacterial infections that to try and get a definite number is very difficult and depends on which year you're looking and which population you're looking in. Um, these are rough estimates on my part because some papers <coughs> quote a UTI risk of 15% and some quoted at 5 
Um, and so most of them are around 10% of febrile infants may have a UTI, and it depends on your population. Um, bacteremia has changed quite a bit, again, with Haemophilus and uh, strep pneumo uh, vaccination and also our GBS prophylaxis. These things are all changing. And now, in a well-appearing febrile infant, it's around 3% at most. Some papers are quoting 2%. So that's decreased quite a bit. Meningitis is well below 1%. Um, again, well-appearing infant. So um, these numbers have decreased dramatically since initial publications in kind of the 90s, early 2000s. Um, and we're getting better at identifying the populations for these numbers. So who needs admission? Um, so I don't know if I have ER folks here, ER, not really. All right, so a little bit. So this is where kind of your ER clinic um, time comes into play. Um, so these are criteria. There are all kinds of city basically names who have coined their own protocols. Um, Rochester, Philadelphia, and Boston um, are all the ones that we, we most uh, refer to. Um, there are Milwaukee, infant sepsis tool, et cetera, but these are the ones that are most well known. Um, basically, you just need to pick one and use it. Um, they each work great. It all depends on your institution's sort of limitations, culture, your own practice style. Um, but if you pick one, even if it's one that I may not pick, it might be one that works for you and your institution. Um, and it will help infants be able to go home from the ER or from clinic um, who have a very low risk of SBI. So if um, you're not routinely using them, start to practice. Maybe you want to practice looking at the labs and risk stratifying and still admit the kid. Um, but eventually, you know, your group can get used to it. Um, I personally use Rochester because it fits my practice style. Um, and it has a narrower white blood cell window, which I like. Um, a lot of infants with um, true SBI have a low white count, and so I think that the other ones miss those kids. So I like Rochester. I also like that it doesn't have an age limit, um, a lower age limit, and so I still may admit the kid who's seven days old because I'm a little bit worried, um, but I'm less worried than a kid with high-risk lab results. So if that baby's mom pushes me for discharge <laughs> that night or if he loses his IV, et cetera, I know how worried I need to be. Um, and so that's why I like to use these. Um, so, why rock the boat, right? So this is an area where I think pediatricians are pretty comfortable. Um, in medical school, residency, general peds, this is an area where it's an easy clinic or ER visit, it's an easy admission. So you're in the clinic or you're in the ER, baby has a fever, it's a no-brainer. You have to do blood, urine, spinal fluid, you give the baby antibiotics and you admit them. As a hospitalist, you get the call, I have a febrile baby, you basically say, great, I'll put them on antibiotics, they'll go home tomorrow, it's an easy admission. Um, and so a lot of folks have asked me, why are you messing with this? It's really easy and we have a lot of these babies. Um, but I see a lot of the problems. And so um, even though it's an easy sort of process for us, there's a lot that goes wrong and a lot that we can improve. Um, so starting off with multiple LP, catheter, PIV attempts. So um, these little babies go through IVs like crazy, especially if you're giving Q6, Q8 antibiotics, um, and they're moving around already tiny little veins, parents trying to feed, et cetera. Um, so they often go through a lot of PIV attempts. This hasn't been quantified anywhere, but just seeing in daily practice, um, I get really frustrated when I come in and a kid has a scalp IV for another 12 hours of antibiotics. Um, the multiple LP attempts, you know, if you have a kid who's a low-risk uh, lab result and they get an LP and then antibiotics, but the LP was failed, and then the next day you have to figure out what's going on with that. Um, IV infiltrates, um, also a frustrating thing for a child who has questionable need for one or two antibiotics to have one of those infiltrate um, in a very little arm um, or leg is a, a tough thing to tell parents about. Um, difficulty with feeding or sleeping. So imagine being a parent, I don't know if any of you have had babies with fever in the hospital, but 
Um, we have kids on Q6 and Q8 antibiotics. Um, usually the Q8 ones will require an IV pump to be in place for 30 minutes. Um, you keep that vein open with a little bit of fluid, the baby's connected, mom's trying to nurse with an IV board in place, um, or multiple attempts. You put on Q4 vitals, you put in a medical student and a resident and an attending who come in multiple times a day, and it drives people nuts um, for those two days. So it's a big deal that I think we underappreciate this impact. Um, repeat testing drives me crazy, um, but it ends up happening a lot in the hospital. Rashes and diarrhea are almost never due to 36 hours of antibiotics, but parents sure do think they are. Um, and so no matter how much I say it's because of the hospital sort of sheets, parents are certain that it's due to um, the antibiotic that they're getting. Um, these two are, are, are also underappreciated. Um, Carrie Byington's kind of one of our febrile infant gurus, and she did a study a couple years ago interviewing parents of um, infants who had had workups for SBI. And those parents basically thought, 30% of them thought their baby was gonna die in the hospital. So if you can imagine that parent who you go in and say, I'm gonna stick a needle in the baby's back, they might have meningitis, it's a very scary infection. You put them on two antibiotics, they stay in the hospital for two days with all these people seeing them. Um, and then elevating that perceptions of Ill perception of illness, similar to a child who has had a chronic illness where that mom you know, now is worried about that little red bump on the arm that's nothing. Um, these parents went home and thought that their kids were sicker than all the other kids that were in the household. Um, the financial burden, I think, is gonna be increasing. Um, we're seeing a rise in high deductible healthcare plans. Um, and so, for instance, my family's uh, deductible is $6,500. And so in 36 hours, that would be gone. Um, the average stay for a baby with fever um, is about two days. Um, and that's cost or charge, depending on what you're looking at, can be anywhere from two to $8,000. Um, and so it's a, it's a chunk of money, depending on what kind of insurance you have. Um, and then the medical system stressor. So in the middle of RSV season, sticking a baby into that bed for two days takes up a lot of space, you know, and considering sending that kid home early if you need that bed. Um, and then medication errors um, are a bigger deal in neonates than older kids. They're always a big deal. Um, but in little neonates, the medication errors tend to have more uh, adverse impact than in older children. Um, and then hospital acquired infections. Again, hopefully we're doing everything we can to prevent this, but um, still an issue, kids still get infections while they're in the hospital um, for other illnesses. Um, so to give you an example of, um, there are a lot of studies similar to mine around the country, um, but I gave you kind of our, our hospital's example because each study is fairly small independently. So this is the first project we did looking at the question of how long kids need to be in the hospital. Um, so anecdotally at the time before we did this, I would get a culture result back at 40 hours and I already knew that it was a false positive. Um, and I started to think, why am I even keeping these kids if I'm not paying attention to these cultures anyways? Um, so also the way that cultures are read, I don't know how it's done at y'all's institution, but for us, we have our continuous blood culture system, um, which we have someone reading that overnight as well. Other places don't necessarily. And our CSF is only read once a day. Um, at the time of this study, our urine was only read once a day. I've now convinced them to staff to have it read twice a day. Um, but so if you're waiting for 48 hours, you're not gonna get any more information on your CSF or urine anyways. Um, so if you, you know, the culture's read at 7 a.m. and you're waiting for 48 hours for that kid till 7 p.m., you're getting no more information on your urine or CSF cultures um, unless you ask the lab to pull that plate for you. So 
At CHKD, um, we had a five-year period, and I basically just looked at all our healthy babies. So this wasn't that many overall. Um, high contamination rate for blood cultures still, which is a pretty common problem. Um, we had 38% pathogens, and 97% were positive by 36 hours. Um, the way that we did this study and the future study I'll tell you about is that we included some contaminant specimens because the attending physician treated them. Um, and I didn't feel like it was right to make the assumption that that attending was wrong clinically at the time. So I did include some coag-negative staph alpha hemolytic strep in this because I didn't know the clinical circumstances as to why that child was treated. Um, even though urine is only read once a day at the time of this study, um, it was still 95% were positive by 36 hours. Um, urine tends to have a higher bacterial load and it stuff grows very easily, E. coli grows very easily. Um, and so they still showed up um, pretty quickly. And now I'm hoping to show a difference because we started reading twice a day. I'm hoping we can move this number back a little bit. Unfortunately, CSF, we don't have that many samples. And this is the problem with every study that has been done so far, um, is everybody ranges around 10, 20 samples in a five-year period, and you just can't get good numbers off of this. Um, so we weren't able to really tell here um, what the times of detection was, um, and definitely falsely elevated because of the way that we read cultures. So um, a lot of us got together with this. So there, these projects were all independently going on. Um, and we met up at one of our conferences a few years ago. Um, and we used one of our research networks, essentially, to help us facilitate this study. Um, so the PRIZE network, hopefully you all have heard about a little bit, um, mentored us through this study. And we included 17 children's hospitals. Um, we ended up having 392 true positive blood cultures. Um, this is the largest study really focusing on febrile infants. 96% um, were, were positive by 36 hours. And so um, again, we included a lot of things that classically would be considered contaminants because we couldn't make assumptions on those clinical scenarios. Um, so that number is probably actually higher if you were to go by true contaminant um, numbers. Um, but this gives you a pretty good idea that if your kid looks fine in front of you, you're probably going to know if there's a true pathogen there by 36 hours. Um, if your kid looks sick, I'd wait a little bit longer because you might be in that extra little tiny percentage there. Um, as you all know, your your samples are only or your results are only good as your samples. So if you have a very tiny amount of bacteria or a very tiny amount of blood um, in that sample, you may have a, a longer time to detection. So um, this is pretty good information, though. So at 36 hours, you're probably going to know if you have a true pathogen there or not. So our problem then, um, urine, we're not really so worried about. So I kind of can guess who has a UTI. And even if I um, sent that kid home that had a UTI and I didn't get that positive culture in time, I'm not that worried about needing to call that kid back. Um, it's a less scary infection than bacteremia meningitis. So worst case scenario, I probably would call in some oral antibiotics if for some reason I missed a, a urine culture late detection. Um, but CSF scares everybody. So we don't want to miss that. Um, so the next step that we've taken here um, is to collect a larger CSF sample. Um, so this one's still in progress. I don't have great statistics yet because we're just finishing up this project now. Um, but this included my institution, Los Angeles, um, Minnesota, and then Santa Clara, which is also in California. Um, we have 422 total cultures. Um, of those, only 53 are pathogens. It's a really high contaminant rate. Um, knowing your denominator, these are only the positive cultures. So overall, CSF is still uh, pretty clean. But it makes you think, and I had no idea we were going to find this, makes you think that some of the positive samples you're getting, when you get all worried about it, they're probably going to be contaminants. Um, and so that, that was an interesting finding for us. We still didn't end up with high numbers, unfortunately, with four large institutions. Um, so however, our mean time to detection was 26 hours. 
Um, the problem being, however, that only 81% of true pathogens are positive by 36 hours. Um, so those other 10 are the ones that I wanted to tell you a little bit about because um, my, and I haven't worked through these again with my statistician, but trying to figure out um, even if your culture is negative, how do I figure out that other 20% um, that I'm worried about? Because I obviously don't want to discharge that kid inappropriately. Um, so this is the layout of those kids that, that were, had uh, cultures greater than 36 hours. Um, a lot of them had pleocytosis. So that's something that I think I would, I would pay attention to. Um, so if you have a kid without pleocytosis and a negative culture, um, it's a lot more helpful. Um, one was a positive blood culture, so that kid I wouldn't have discharged. Two of these were actually, I think, contaminants. Um, they were mixed flora and kids without pleocytosis, but um, so far, including them, again, because of the clinical circumstances, I wasn't there treating these kids. Um, and one was pure luck. This was in a 65-day-old kid who had low-risk labs and just happened to come back with GBS in the broth only at 72 hours. So um, this is one that I don't think anybody would have caught even if you had kept the kid for 48 hours. You still would have discharged them, um, and this culture would have come back positive. So this kid got called back to the hospital um, after discharge anyway. So, um, this does give us some reassurance. I'd like to add in other measures to provide additional reassurance, such as looking at some of our um, bacterial meningitis scoring systems, perhaps um, for neonates as well. So we're still working on the CSF part of this. Um, the take home point is that your blood culture, you'll probably know by 36 hours. Your urine, you'll have an idea. Um, and your CSF, if you have a well-appearing kid with you know, no pleocytosis, um, I would suggest that probably 36 hours is, is long enough. Yes? How did you determine whether it was contaminant? Was it the physician's treatment plan where yes. they determined it was contamination? We did. So we went on treatment plan. So we probably all had kids that looked really, really sick. And you don't know if you should trust that. You know, Some of these were um, kids who had a, um, a couple of the ones that were not contaminants or contaminants may have had a positive blood culture as well, or <coughs> probably also was a contaminant, et cetera. So these were ones that the doctor treating the kid and was in front of the kid treated. And so retrospectively, I didn't want to make a judgment on that, although you probably could argue to do so um, based on the cell counts and things like that. Um, so our most common pathogen was GBS still, um, which is interesting because, as I'll talk about a little bit later, um, for bacteremia, we've seen a shift away from GBS and actually towards gram-negative pathogens, um, which you all are probably seeing clinically. We see a lot of E. coli, Klebsiella, Citrobacter, et cetera. Um, still see GBS, but it's a little bit behind of the gram-negatives. Um, still the most common pathogen in uh, meningitis. It's very invasive and very quickly invasive. So these are children who had a positive blood culture pretty quickly with their CSF culture. Um, and so um, gives us an idea of still pathogen-causing meningitis and a lot of, uh, of morbidity these days. Um, we had no listeria. I'll go into more detail there. Um, we had one true case of enterococcus that came with enterococcus bacteremia. Um, we also had a couple staph aureus. We had two citrobacters, um, an enterobacter, so a couple other pathogens that we don't routinely cover for. Um, a lot had pleocytosis. Only 50% had a positive gram stain or positive blood culture. Um, so I find that a lot of trainees put a lot of weight into the blood culture result for predicting meningitis. Um, and you can't do that because a lot of kids will clear their bacteremia first but still have seeded their meninges and it will continue to, to cause problems. So um, the blood culture and, and gram stain are not very helpful in predicting meningitis. Um, if they're positive, that's great. Um, but if they're negative, you can't rest a whole lot on that necessarily. Um, with those who did have a positive blood culture, again, a lot of those were GBS, and so most of them grew very quickly. So 
we got our time to detection part um, studied and underway for CSF. Um, the next question is epidemiology. So what are we doing? Um, what we're doing currently for our empiric antibiotic coverage, whether that's still appropriate. Um, some history, again, that antibiotic coverage came mostly in the late 70s, early 80s, and we've kept it the same since then. Um, so either kids get ampicillin and gentamicin, or now we've moved a lot more folks are treating with ampicillin and cefotaxime. Um, but other than the switch to the cephalosporin, it's essentially the same coverage. Students and residents are taught your most likely pathogens are GBS, E. coli, and listeria. That's the board question. That's the question you know um, off the top of your head when your attending asks you. And that's no longer correct. Um, listeria is not a common pathogen. It's certainly not in those top three. Um, you know, more often I'd like to be hearing stu students tell me Enterobacter, you know, E. coli, GBS, and Enterobacter, or E. coli, GBS, and Klebsiella, because those are things we see more often. Um, so what's happened? Just like any infectious disease process, your epidemiology changes. Um, we haven't looked at it. Like we've looked at pneumonia, we've looked at osteomyelitis, we've looked at a lot of skin soft tissue infections, um, but looking at SBI in infants has not really been done until recently. Um, so the things that have happened is institution of GBS prophylaxis, which has uh, decreased our rates of early onset GBS sepsis, um, not so much the late infections. But in doing that, which is helpful, we've also put some more antibiotic pressure um, on those pathogens that are potentially colonizing infants who get SBI later. Um, so in, for instance, Intermountain Healthcare is a kind of a closed system. Um, they were able to link babies who got, whose mothers got intrapartum penicillin to the ones who had longer uh, or who had ampicillin-resistant pathogens later in life. Um, so there is a link there. That's only one study, but most other systems are not closed like that one. Um, so there's probably a link there. The other one is that the FDA found out about listeria and how bad it was, and they've essentially tried to eradicate it from um, being a human pathogen. There's still outbreaks. We still hear about the cantaloupe and the raw milk statement from the AAP a few months ago, et cetera, but um, it's decreased dramatically. And in the well-appearing febrile infant who's already been discharged from the nursery, mom doesn't have risk factors, it doesn't really happen anymore. Um, the problem is that we see a lot of other things these days that we are uh, falsely secure in our old sort of way of doing things that we don't worry about these multi-drug resistant gram negatives. Um, but I still hear people worry about listeria. And so uh, it's kind of a backwards uh, argument. Um, so with the listeria outbreaks, also keeping in mind that when you hear about the outbreak, it's probably one or two cases and a lot of media publication about recalling those foods. Um, I tried to look up New Hampshire before I came, and I think the most recent one was smoked salmon back in July. Um, but knowing your local culture is important. Um, if you have a lot of parents who consume raw, raw dairy products, then you not, might need to be a little bit more worried. Um, we have a very large Hispanic population in my area, so I've started screening um, with food intake and kind of um, screening questions for febrile infants. Um, so there have been a lot of changes in food handling in, in the United States. Um, this does not apply to overseas. Um, so the changes have not been noted in overseas as much as we've seen them here. Um, so looking into this more than just uh, you know, thoughts about it, actually studying it. Um, so we took some of those similar sites and a few different ones to look at the epidemiology of blood cultures. Um, there have been many single institution sites that have done this, but it's been hard to make recommendations because they're each their own institution in their own, own state. And so um, we brought uh, places from around the country. This was published, I think it was in November 2013, um, in pediatrics, where um, really you can see that E. coli is still our, our predominant pathogen, which is mimicking a lot of smaller institution studies. Um, GBS is still second. 
Um, but what I'd like you to notice is that um, Staph aureus is high on that list, equivalent to Strep pneumo, um, and our uh, Klebsiella is also pretty high. Um, this is presumably due to the whole UTI thing, but that's not playing out in, in studies we're doing now. So um, it also just might be a shift in what's colonizing babies and what we're seeing causing invasive infections. Um, what's important here, and I'll talk more about antibiotic choice, is seeing that Staph aureus um, may be a bigger player than Enterococcus. So when I talk about changing antibiotics, the argument that I've gotten for the last year or two since I've been doing this is, well, okay, you're not worried about Listeria, um, but we need to worry about Enterococcus. So what if you miss Enterococcus? I need to keep the ampicillin on board. Um, but again, it's a little bit backwards logic because if you're telling me you need to worry about Enterococcus, why not Staph aureus and why not Klebsiella, which is more likely to be ampicillin resistant? Um, so, whereas I'm not advocating every kid go on Vank and Mirapenem, um, I also don't think that every kid needs ampicillin on board as well, just in case it might be an enterococcus infection. Um, again, we saw no listeria, and these are healthy kids, um, not our NICU population. So, going to antibiotic choice, this is my current sort of soapbox area of interest, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, and dare go out to dinner with me and you will hear about this in some way, shape, or form, because that's all I, I do research right now on. Um, so, current practice um, depends on where you are, what the culture of your institution is. Um, for the most part, you can say folk, kids either get ampicillin and gentamicin or ampicillin and cefotaxime um, if they're less than 28 days. Some folks do that all the way up until eight weeks. Um, some folks have switched to dropping the ampicillin after 28 days based on a study that was done um, in 2002 that said that listeria, if it's going to happen, doesn't happen after 28 days. So these are the, the usual regimens. Anecdotally, just in talking to folks around the country, I think a lot of people have switched to amp and cefotax. Um, I think the nursery people love their amp and gent and they're going to hang on to it forever. Um, but I think for ease of, of administration and also um, the new sort of generation of pediatricians are more comfortable with cephalosporins and gentamicin. Um, and I honestly think that's why this, there's been the switch. No particular reason other than we're just used to cephalosporins and so that's what kids get put on more often. Um, so these things in context of the epidemiology um, don't necessarily make sense. So the reason we've hung on to amp and gen for so long is because it's great for GBS. It's the best proven therapy, it has great synergy, it kills very quickly. Um, so if you have a true GBS infection, you know it, that's what you're going to put the kid on. Um, Cefotaxime, however, works pretty darn good for GBS. We just haven't done a study on it. So there have been a lot of studies on amp and gen for GBS. Um, but Cefotaxime or any of the third generation cephalosporins work very well for GBS. And um, they're actually preferred for gram-negative meningitis in particular. Um, so there are risk benefits to these. There are good choices um, for your pathogens, but empiric coverage is what I'm trying to keep in mind um, because we don't see these invasive infections that often. So again, when I try to put these concepts out, everybody says, we'll prove it. And so um, I did a, an update on that 2002 publication, which I just submitted last week, so I'm hoping to hear back soon. Um, so we did a systematic review of all the studies that focused on SBI in the last 15 years. So I only included those 15 years because epidemiology changes, and I didn't feel like it was worth including 70s, 80s studies, um, and even early 90s, because we have had so much change happen um, since that time that those numbers are no longer relevant to us. 
Um, I also only included studies in the US, which was different than the Brown study, um, because I want to practice the way that my epidemiology is here. It's completely different from France, completely different from anywhere in India, Africa, wherever these other studies have been done. Um, and so that doesn't apply to us. And we need to only you know, think about our, our local stuff for our babies that are here. Um, so we ended up having about 22,000 total cultures for each of urine, blood, and CSF to include in meta-analysis. Um, and the numbers um, played out pretty well. Um, so for bacteremia, um, the rate, and this is of all cultures, so if you take a blood culture <clears throat> on a febrile baby in your ER, the risk of finding enterococcus is 0.07%. So you would need to screen or you would need to do 1,535 blood cultures before you would see one case. Um, listeria is 2,048 blood cultures before you would see one case. Um, and this is actually probably higher because the studies that had listeria babies actually included ICU in their cultures. Um, and so I think this number is probably high, uh, actually um, lower than we would anticipate. In our population that doesn't include the ICU, I doubt we see it. Um, but still, I, I included those studies because they otherwise were relevant. Um, meningitis, again, one we don't want to miss. Your risk of enterococcus is 0.02% of all CSF cultures taken. Again, very rare. Um, you would need to screen 18, 1,844 babies. Um, listeria is up at 9,000. Um, so very rare for both of these. UTI is a little more common, 0.3% um, of all urine cultures taken. Um, but still in the context of um, all babies that come with fever, it's still pretty rare. Um, and these are ones, again, some of these studies either defined UTI differently than we do now. Um, we have, have kind of narrowed our, our definition of UTI than we did 15 years ago. So this number may be um, lower than it truly is um, in current practice. Um, so this is the argument against needing ampicillin still. Um, I didn't perform the meta-analysis for all the other bacteria that were reported in these studies because it was just too much, um, but we did preliminary stuff looking at Staph aureus and Enterobacter species, um, and those are much higher. Um, and so again, the take home point is, for empiric coverage, you don't necessarily need to worry about these things, trying to hold on to our, our old ways. Um, but if you have a really sick baby in front of you or a really sick baby with meningitis, you need to make sure you're considering those other pathogens. Um, so you know, I've seen really sick babies with a CSF white count of 5,000 come in on ampencephatax, and that may not be adequate um, because we do see staph aureus, we do see some multi-drug resistant gram negatives. So I'm um, keeping that in mind. To give you some perspective, um, we're a fairly large institution, certainly not um, as large as some of those, but we admit about 180 babies per year with fever um, to our, our practice, the hospital service, and our private practice. Um, so we would need to treat for 12 years before we would see bacteremia or meningitis from listeria or enterococcus. And to me, it's not worth it. I don't want to cover 12 years of febrile babies just in case I might see a case uh, in 12 years from now. And then every two years, we would see a case of enterococcus UTI. Um, so my argument for UTI is if for some reason I don't cover it for 24 hours, it's probably not a big deal. Enterococcus is not a rapidly invasive species. Um, it tends to be fairly indolent if it's there. Um, and so also you're watching the kid in the hospital. It's the benefit of being a hospitalist. The kid's right in front of me. So if they get sicker, I can always add it on if I need to. Um, so this gives some perspective. I don't know what your numbers are here, but trying to figure that out would give you some idea of your coverage. Um, so this is where the title of the, the talk comes, is Time for a Change. So 
Um, my recommendations, which you know, hopefully will end up being published if pediatrics uh, lets me, um, is that I think we need to at least shift our thinking about febrile infants to get out of our comfort zone. Um, right now, it's a comfortable spot. We do what we've always done. We hope it works, and we assume it works, but it may not. Um, so I don't think every kid needs ampicillin. Um, you can argue about antibiotic pressures and whether using a third-generation cephalosporin is cost-effective and induces any kind of pressures on our bacteria. Um, but our febrile babies are not going to be the problem. It's the local sort of use of antibiotics for other things that's probably the bulk of the problem there. Um, but really focusing on tailoring the therapy to your individual baby. Um, e. coli and GBS are by far the stuff that's going to be causing pathogens. Cefotaxime does a great job there, and you can even take that a step further and consider ceftriaxone um, for your baby's over that bilirubin worry of 7 to 14 days. Um, maybe you don't even need to put in an IV. Give them an IM ceftriaxone, watch them for 24, 36 hours, and discharge them. Um, or if you know, you're admitting a baby who meets low-risk criteria, but it's kind of a hard social situation or it's the weekend, et cetera, um, considering no antibiotics. I do this a lot. I've not had any pushback yet from insurance companies, because um, essentially I'm just bringing them there, putting them in a bed, and watching them for 24 to 36 hours. Um, and they haven't caught on yet. I think they probably will, um, but they haven't figured it out yet. Um, so that's another option. Um, and then knowing your local and your hospital epidemiology is very important. So, um, if you know you have a high area of raw milk consumption up here, then you need to screen moms and screen uh, babies for risk of listeria. If you, you know, if the brother's sitting there with an MRSA abscess, um, then you probably need to worry about that in the baby. Um, so screening, just like you would for any older kids. If you have a 16-year-old who comes in with fever of unknown origin, or fever without a source, I should say, you're going to ask screening questions um, to figure out what to target. And so you should do the same thing with febrile babies instead of a, a shotgun approach. Um, so future directions here are uh, exciting for me, um, just to give you guys a sense of what's going on. Um, this kind of search for the holy grail lab test has been ongoing. Um, and we've probably been doing it for 10 or 15 years, and no one's figured it out yet. Um, so something's going to improve in medicine. We're going to figure this out, and all of this will be uh, no bother in the future as it is. But for now, we're kind of focusing in on CRP and procalcitonin. Um, CRP is less helpful because most ba babies with fever come in um, after only a few hours, and so CRP hasn't had time to bump enough reliably. Um, and so that's not playing out as well in that first presentation. Um, Procalcitonin rises a lot more quickly. Um, so within around six hours is what's quoted, but probably sooner, you'll see that rise. Um, and it's more specific to bacterial sepsis than viral sepsis, which is also helpful. Um, however, we've not established the number um, to, to screen infants, and the studies haven't been big enough yet, and it's not widely available. So at CHKD, I don't have this at my discretion. Um, it's a three-day send-out lab, so I can't use this yet. Um, but a lot of institutions are able to, and I think we're going to figure this out just like we figured out CRP um, coming up. Um, one of the exciting ones is reclassifying SBI. So there's a fever sort of work group going on that uh, we're considering uh, reclassifying UTI as potentially not an SBI or starting to change this uh, classification to say invasive bacterial infection. So IBI, great, so we change the word again. Um, but invasive bacterial infection instead of serious because starting to find that UTI may not be truly as serious. Um, and maybe it is an infection in infants, but it's not that bad that we need to worry and put it in the same class as bacteremia and meningitis. So it'll be interesting to see what the work group comes up with, what the terminology is, but I think that that is going to shift um, as well. 
Um, and then outpatient observation. So I think this is kind of a, I guess slippery slope's not the right word because I think it's a good thing. But um, now I'm admitting kids on IM ceftriaxone, you know, a five-week-old, four-week-old with low-risk labs um, on IM ceftriaxone. Why not send that kid home? Or why not consider potentially oral antibiotics down the road? Um, developing countries have been doing this for years, um, either treatment centers for febrile babies or switching to oral antibiotics. Um, MUSD did a great study a few years ago on babies who had defined infection. Um, they kind of picked the best population, so the really good parents who lived nearby and had great uh, uh, access to the physicians, they picked those good populations to do this, a little bit skewed. Um, but they sent them home at five days. So they had a kid with GBS meningitis, they sent them home um, on either IM or peripheral IV therapy, and every kid did fine. Um, so I think they had 97 babies in that study. Um, so I think we have some options, changes to move forward with. Um, it's just a slow-moving move, slow uh, progress. Um, so conclusions, I think you all kind of gathered this you know, from the talk. Screening in the ED, um, we still have a high contamination rate of blood and, and lumbar puncture or CSF results. So improving technique there. Um, the lumbar puncture technique is one of my next directions um, because we still use betadine, and I think it's a, li a little bit old-fashioned. Um, and then your time to detection of 36 hours is probably adequate for well-appearing infants. Um, and then consider you know, tailoring your therapy empirically for your febrile infants. Um, I have a ton of references, so I didn't list them all, but if you all are interested, I'm happy to have them all in my jump drive. I can, I can direct you. Um, and questions, discussion? That's a good question, and I don't know if they've looked at the populations. I know it used to be physicians, um, and now it's probably ancillary staff members for the most part. I doubt any house staff is doing blood cultures routinely these days. Um, they're mostly, the studies that have been done on contamination rate are mostly in the ERs, um, so trying to perfect that process. But I don't think they've specified, I'll, I'm going to go back and look, I don't think they've specified who took, do you know? Um, yeah, you know, I've done some QI work at another institution on this, and one of the big problems is cultures drawn through IV placement. Yes. And as you all know. but that, that's, existing IV. Yes. Well, no, I mean, at the time of the IV oh, placement, the time. so it's an ER practice, and, you know, the, the idea is to limit the, um, you know, your idea of potentially intramuscular administration could actually lead to a, a single draw for mm -hmm. the blood culture, which would dramatically decrease mm -hmm. uh, contamination rates. You know, the, and children's hospitals in this country have contamination rates for blood cultures and neonates of 10 to 15 percent, and easy, like easily at baseline. It's not more. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah. it's it's pretty it's a dramatic problem, and I think that we the, the problem is is that we the issue of multiple sticks mm -hmm. is a big problem. And, uh, but the methods of, of culture, and it's the it's it's almost universally the, in the pediatric literature, the cultures drawn through exist the IV placement. It's also how it's done. So um, they're switching to chlorhexidine has proved to be very beneficial in contamination rates. Um, most people don't let the betadine dry, and that's an ongoing issue with whatever you're doing. Um, and it's still an issue, I think, with LPs. But with you know a, a nurse or whoever is doing the, the blood draw, just quickly putting betadine on or wiping with alcohol and sticking the needle in. Um, so having a standardization of process, there's been a lot of good ones. But 
Yeah, and when you think about it, if an acceptable, like typical pathology labs will tell you that an acceptable contamination rate is two to four percent. Mm -hmm. That's if your pathogen detection rate is three <laughs> percent. I mean, you know, you're 50-50 yeah. in the best case scenario. And that I think is why hospitals get interested in this because we see the well children. You guys, you know, see the, the sick ones, but we see that we see everybody, and it's always a contaminant. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's kind of the, the, the clinical way we, we end up approaching it. It's almost cry wolf now. We had a, a kid who came in, an 18-year-old girl who came in. And um, she had a fever, but looked fine. And uh, her blood culture grew at 22 hours, gram-positive coccyne clusters. And um, the resident didn't call the attending in the middle of the night because they said, oh, it's probably contaminant. I'm not going to worry about it. And we came in in the morning. We're like, oh, my God, what are you doing? Um, so, But I think it's a bit of cry wolf now because our contamination rate is so high that trainees don't worry you know, as much. Right. It, it leads, this leads to the second part of the question, that, that, that uh, this idea of including these patients because even though you think it's a contaminant because the physician decided mm -hmm. to treat. And I understand that impulse, but there's a lot of work in our clinical trials group from the intensive care world that the decision to continue treatment is so bizarrely psychotic. Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Dan, try to get that published when you have an ID doc as your review. Yeah, it is. It's difficult. So that's actually why for our prize study, we thought about that and we had two things laid out. And um, we were essentially told, well, who are you to decide that this two alpha streps in a row in a well-appearing kid is a contaminant? Like, well, it, it is, but I didn't make that choice. So I'm, I'm trying to work with the CSF one. That's why I haven't got the numbers yet, because I'd love to be able to exclude those. I think it would improve. I understand why you have to do it, but it is a severe limitation. It definitely is. You cannot trust. The psychology of why decisions. I wholeheartedly Sorry. agree with you. Even this one CSF sample that was GBS and broth only at 72 hours, I think that might have been a skin contaminant. I'm not going to tell anybody that, but the kid had no pleocytosis, no high-risk labs, looked fine, um, and got one dose of IM ceftriaxone and came back and everything was still fine. They did a repeat uh, CSF study, still no pleocytosis three days later. So um, I still think that you know time to detection may be an indication of contamination, but it's hard to make that argument, especially retrospectively. Yeah, um, I agree with you about the contaminant issue, but I don't want people to be misled in the neonatal population. Very different. Groupies, uh, I'm sorry, it's coag negative staph is a real pathogen yes. uh, because it's so associated with devices and TPN, particularly lipids. Um, there is also the problem of contamination, um, but it's, it's even more difficult to sort Definitely. out the contamination issue in the nursery where Coagnative staff can be either a contaminant or a real pathogen. Um, I, I wish we had a better way of telling it. My sense is that it's more often a contaminant, but our my colleagues, uh, we get discordant cultures mm -hmm. for coagnative staff. We try to get two cultures. Uh, the reason they got worked up is because they had symptoms, and mm -hmm. so babies have low colony count bacteremia, mm -hmm. as you pointed out. So those kids almost universally get treated, even though they're discordant cultures. So. Agreed. Very strong disclaimer here. You know, for this is term febrile babies. This has nothing to do with the NICU population. Um, also, listeria could still, it's still low, but still could be a problem in the NICU population because the cases that we do see in infants is the mom who is, has a febrile illness has a preterm baby and the baby's very sick. You better worry about listeria. It's still low risk, but that's a, that's a different population than the kid that I'm talking about. So I agree, though, um, very different in the NICU world um, than these babies. 
Um, thank you for that talk. I'm an outpatient physician, and I'm wondering, based on your work, if you see my role changing a lot. Because right now, I'll get a five-week-old in clinic. They've got a brother in preschool who just came down with a fever. And I've got a kid who looks great. Temp is 38.4. It's never right. 40. Right. It's always 38.4 or 38.5. And I take it twice. I'm like, really? Really? That's really? where I joke you walk away for an hour, and you're like, I'm really busy. I'll, I'll be back to check on you. <laughs> LP right. Like, do I really have to do that? So I do love my role changing. I, I do, yes. Um, and I think that it's different depending on where you are. So I love one of my favorite studies is this PROS study. Um, so pediatric research in the office setting. I love it because they took us away from our ivory tower academic approach. So we we sit up here and we say everybody needs this LP, blood, urine, et cetera, but that's not practical. Um, Sean and I were talking about Montana. I mean, if you're in the middle of Montana, you're not going to admit this baby for 48 hours, and you know all you know it's different. And then outpatient practice, you know that family, you know the brother is sick, you have the baby in front of you, you can bring the mom back the next morning. Um, and so what this study did is basically look at the real life practices of pediatricians and what they did, and they were pretty good. I think it's reassuring for pediatricians. I'm not advocating that babies don't get work up because I'm not supposed to say that, but um, <laughs> if you look at this study, you can kind of see they probably match up with what you do in real life, you know? And I think it's encouraging for, for folks who say, I don't, I don't want to do this. It's, um, it's, it's similar to other things, or we're supposed to teach this way, but in real life, it doesn't necessarily work like that. So I do see it changing. I think like CRP and procalcitonin are going to help a lot for um, potentially outpatient practice and EDs, um, or finding out that we can improve our CSF culture or whatever it is. But um, I do think it's going to change. Just It's very slow change. It speaks to you left the you left the clinical decision rules I think off the hook too easily. And yeah. I think you gave credence to Boston, Rochester, Philadelphia, and all the rest. The the fact that there are multiple ones speaks to the fact that no one performed particularly well. Right. And so a lot of what you're seeing, a lot of it's hard to detect signal in your samples because there's a lot of noise because those 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 decision rules aren't discriminated enough. And there are lots of kids that we see in ambulatory practice. Who do not get workups when they have fever over 38 who look great. And so that probably drives down even further your rates of meningitis and what we call bacteremia. So I would hope that you at some point turn your attention and energies and, and talents towards that end of the spectrum. Because if you're talking about doing observation of kids in the inpatient setting, or maybe you're basically saying, why do we admit them in the first place? Right. Maybe these decision goals don't serve us well. Well, the, are you talking about the observation scores or the fever protocol things? The, the Rochester criteria. Yeah. Criteria. If you're talking about saying, I can bring in a kid and watch them for 48 hours, well, that's what we can do in with their practice. You definitely so, can. So they sh you're suggesting they perhaps shouldn't have been in the first place, which means their decision will to admit them is flawed. I, I agree with that, and you said it, not me, um, because <laughs> <laughs> I know. So yeah, I I right. So again, this has financial downstream implications that I don't even want to go into because it supports my practice. So, um, but I think culturally, most hospitals, if you were to take over all takers in the U.S., are still probably admitting those babies with fever at six weeks old. Um, we do at our hospital for the most part. Um, bigger institutions like Cincinnati, Cincinnati and Utah have got their, their protocols in place, and they typically don't. Um, these protocols work very well. They have been tested on 10 to 15,000 babies. They work very well if you follow them strictly. Um, but I don't think people are comfortable enough with them yet. And so I would say that those babies don't need to be admitted at all. Um, but since they are, because I think that's still evolving, 
I don't want to do too much to them while they're with me, basically. So as a hospitalist, my perspective is a little different. Um, and I don't want to shoot myself in the foot when I you know, lose my funding in five years um, from that. But you will. It's funding streams move away from um, the fee-for-service yeah. I agree because I, I think too that you know as insurance companies catch on um, that they're going to realize that my my DRG for febrile baby I don't use that much money anymore and so they're going to shift away and give me less money for that and then we're going to be forced and it's a very circular system. Something you just said also uh, reminded me to ask the uh, is there any information about rates of complications? Yes. From unnecessary LPs, unnecessary antibiotics. Yes, 100%. Unnecessary hospital admissions, uh, acquiring uh, RSV pneumonia in, in the hospital, et cetera. Yes, the most of them are antibiotic complication rates. And I don't have the numbers up here. I have the study that I can I can tell you more in detail. But um, folks have studied the, the antibiotic um, or medication error rates and um, adverse effects. And also the PIV infiltrates are a big one. Um, that's the one that has been most often studied. Um, the hospital acquired infections is less often, honestly, than you would think it would be, which I guess is a good thing. Um, and then adverse events of other uh, things, like mom stopping breastfeeding, essentially, over a two-day hospitalization have also been quantified. So I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. I don't know if Sean does, but I have the papers um, here that I can, I can use yeah, for Yeah, this particular question is the, the question that we, that as hospitals, I think are most interested in. Mm -hmm. There's been very little research directed against that, you know, from a, that it's associated with any particular group. Um, and so a friend of ours wrote a commentary in pediatrics a few years ago that I recommend everyone read. It's called Safely Doing Less, a yes. Missing Component of the Patient Safety Dialogue. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, one of the one of the points about all of the work we've directed towards patient safety, you know, um, what's what, what's missing from that? You know, all that is adding a layer or doing something, you know, and but one of the conversations we're trying to have as hospitalists is, well, if we reevaluate the necessity of some of our practice and if we really look hard at the harms of what we do, you know, um, the, one of the more effective patient safety measures in um, in the regular inpatient setting may be not doing the thing in the first place. And uh, I, I think that's revolutionary. And I think that we, we're really, really interested in talking mm -hmm. about that. And, and doing, and if, uh, you know, there's just real absence of research on things like you know, IV infiltrates. I mean, you know, there are three or four papers on the on you know the cost of putting an IV in multiple times and on mm -hmm. the, the harm of IV infiltrates in neonates. You know, why is that? It's crazy because anybody who works in the ward knows it's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. You know, any any nurse who's had to give whitings or whatever, I mean, you know, it's a huge problem. And so uh, I think that for the young people in the room, then that that's what you ought to be working on. Yeah. And I like I, and with my what I say with that ampicillin argument is if a kid I don't think needs ampicillin, I come in and they have an IV infiltrate from their ampicillin. I don't feel like I can go tell the parents that it was warranted. You know, if I have a complication, I always want to be able to say, I'm sorry this happened, but we had to do this. You know, with this, I can't do that. I mean, if a kid gets an IV infiltrate from something I didn't want them to get in the first place, what do I tell the parents, you know? Or if they had five IV attempts and I was going to stop the antibiotics at 8 a.m., I mean, I, I feel horrible when I go in and hear that because, you know, it's, it's very traumatic. So it has been quantified um, and many times, and, and that's why what's kind of driving this. So as Sean introduced this uh, lecture for the, for the younger people who are in the youngest heart, which is all of us, um, always question the dominant paradigm. Yes, and yes. We'll leave you to that and have a great day. Thank you. I'm happy to stick up here and ask questions.